Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Counsel Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For this week's update on the law, we're going to look at lessons Defense Counsel may glean from the Department of the Air Force's November 2021 report from the Interpersonal Violence Task Force. Then, our focus on advocacy will look at lay opinion evidence regarding demeanor. Before we get into the takeaways from the Interpersonal Violence Task Force, we should pause to give some background on what it is exactly. Following a pair of murders of junior enlisted service members in the different services, the Secretary of the Air Force directed the creation of the task force in July 2020 to try and figure out what the Air Force could do better to keep Department of Air Force personnel safe. Broadly speaking, the task force focused on the processes used by the Air Force to identify and respond to a variety of unwanted behaviors, ranging from belittling comments to acts of violence. The 81 behaviors the task force identified were categorized into five overarching groups. One, intimate partner violence. Two, non-intimate partner violence. Three, harassment in the workplace. Four, bullying in the workplace. And five, bullying generally. The task force examined administrative data, conducted a survey, and then did focus groups with people who were willing to participate further after the survey. The goal was to determine who experienced one of these unwanted behaviors, who sought help, why those who didn't report the unwanted behaviors decided not to report it, and how the currently available services are perceived by both victims and command teams. The report is full of statistics from the survey, but the report itself acknowledges that readers must consume the data with a grain of salt, because although the survey was sent to everyone in the Department of the Air Force, only 10% of personnel chose to participate. While the report seems to lament the relatively low response rate, it seems to ignore that this potentially creates a self-selection bias in the responses, which may slant the accuracy of the survey compared to a randomized sampling of personnel. In other words, those who identify as a victim of one of the unwanted behaviors may have been more likely to respond to the survey and to participate in the after-survey process. But even with those limitations, there are still some data in the report that Defense Counsel may be able to use. For instance, the bottom line of the task force's report suggests that alleged victims perceive the Air Force's response processes to be deficient, and these processes include investigations and courts-martial. Defense counsel can use these perceived deficiencies to help build relationships with alleged victims, negotiate alternative dispositions outside of courts-martial with alleged victims, and sway commanders to embrace those alternatives as well. 
For the sorts of serious misconduct that might result in a courts-martial, the deficiencies include, first, the military justice process is perceived as too slow. Second, alleged victims tend to want feedback to show that there was a consequence to the accused. Third, some alleged victims feel like they are bounced around to different agencies, resulting in telling and retelling their account of what happened, and that leads to frustration regarding the handling of their case. Interestingly, according to some of the survey data, victims appear to feel less frustrated when the case is investigated by civilian law enforcement. Finally, the due process required by the military justice process leaves some alleged victims hurting because impeachment and acquittals can damage their credibility within the workplace or the military community. All of these complaints seem to be in harmony with information recently gathered by defense counsel exploring the relationships between defense counsel, victims counsel, and the prosecution. The prosecution is essentially a behemoth involving a sea of investigators, agencies, paralegals, and attorneys all working to move the case forward, but not always working in sync, which is something else the task force highlighted. In contrast, defense counsel and victims counsel are smaller teams that are more nimble and specialized because they focus on their individual clients. And, like their clients, they too experience frustration dealing with the government and its many moving and sometimes uncoordinated parts. So what does all of this mean for defense counsel? Well, taken together, all these potential perceived flaws in the Air Force's response to handling allegations by an alleged victim are things that defense counsel can emphasize when negotiating for an alternative resolution. They can try to demonstrate ways that the complainant can exercise some control over the case rather than having to suffer through the government's disjointed and time-consuming investigation of the allegations and potential prosecution of the alleged perpetrator. Defense counsel can point out where or how the victim can avoid the high stakes of a criminal trial by supporting a less severe forum, such as an administrative discharge. So, for example, where an alleged victim is frustrated because they perceive there has been no consequence for months after making their allegation, we can propose an alternative where there is an expedited consequence. The defense can offer a speedy alternative to resolving the case by proactively connecting with the alleged victim through their representative to establish a relationship and target whether there might be room for a resolution that avoids the risk and labors of a court-martial. For alleged victims who are frustrated about having to rehash a potentially traumatizing event yet again, and this time having their credibility publicly challenged through cross-examination, they may be interested in avoiding a trial and all the scrutiny and stress that comes with it. For victims who want to know exactly what happens as a result of the allegation, well, they may be interested in helping shape those consequences. These are all pitches that can be made to support alternatives as you investigate and prepare your case. Of course, it will depend on the facts and the evidence as well as the level of risk that your client is willing to accept. But when appropriate, the deficiencies articulated by the task force set out data-driven arguments for why an alternative disposition may be a good result for the victim's counsel's client as well as for your own. For alleged victims and their representatives, it's about identifying what justice means to them and trying to meet that end. Quickly. You may be able to help them understand that concurring with your proposed alternative may help resolve some of the systematic inadequacies highlighted by the report. Likewise, for commanders, it's about highlighting how this case fits into the broader trends highlighted by the task force's report and how your proposed solution would bolster the standing of the Air Force by resolving a high-visibility issue in a manner that is sensitive to the needs of the alleged victim and still satisfactory for everyone else involved. All right, turning to this week's advocacy focus, we're going to talk about lay opinion, 
related to demeanor evidence. Lay opinions are governed by Military Rule of Evidence 701. And to be admissible under the rule, the lay opinion must be rationally based on something the witness has perceived. It must be helpful to the fact finder in either understanding what the witness is testifying about or a fact at issue in the case. And the opinion may not be based on some specialized scientific knowledge such that it would be subject to the requirements of expert opinion testimony under MRE 702. When we're talking about demeanor evidence, we're essentially talking about how someone looked. For instance, when you ask a witness what sort of facial expression Airman Snuffy had when he threatened them, you are seeking to elicit the witness's opinion as to whether Airman Snuffy appeared serious or whether he may have been joking or sarcastic. Of course, there's a fine line that has to be walked when dealing with this sort of evidence. On the one hand, courts have repeatedly ruled that this sort of evidence is admissible, but on the other hand, lay witness evidence may veer into inadmissible human lie detector evidence. The lead military case on demeanor evidence is United States v. Roberson, 65 MJ 43, which is a 2007 decision by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. In the Roberson case, the defense wanted to introduce lay opinion testimony about how the appellant appeared upon being told that a person was coming to collect on an alleged debt. The defense witness would have testified that the appellant appeared shook. The defense wanted to admit this evidence to show that the appellant was scared of that other person and thereby bolster the duress defense. Without a lot of discussion, the court said that, quote, so long as the opinion is based upon personal observation and is relevant, a lay witness may testify about another's emotional state. A 2018 case from the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals, United States v. Patrick, 78 MJ 687, even said that it was permissible for a sexual assault nurse examiner to testify about the demeanor of the alleged sex assault victim during the forensic examination. So you may be thinking, what? So now anyone can anyone who sees an alleged victim can basically come in and corroborate the alleged victim's account by talking about how they looked without any actual knowledge as to why they looked that way? That's where the fine line comes in. A lay witness who is talking about what they observe about another witness's demeanor cannot veer into what's called human lie detector testimony. One type of human lie detector testimony is when a witness gives an explicit opinion testifying that another statement was truthful or untruthful. Opinion testimony is impermissible where, as the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces said in United States v. Martin, 75 MJ 321, the substance of the testimony leads the members to infer that the witness believes the victim is truthful or deceitful with respect to an issue at trial. End of quote. In that case, the victim's husband testified that he believed his wife was being truthful about the alleged sexual assault based on changes in her behavior. Thus, the witness went too far by providing his opinion on the veracity of the victim. In other words, human lie detector testimony. Judges are very guarded about staying on the proper side of this line. In fact, the bench book has a standard instruction just in case something could be construed as improper opinion evidence. And that is instruction 7-26. By the way, don't be shy about requesting a tailored instruction if this sort of evidence is coming up in your case. Just as you would if there was an OSI interview where the agents called your client a liar, you need to request an instruction that directs the members how they may use that evidence. The Patrick decision, which is the case we just talked about, where the sane was permitted to provide her opinion regarding the demeanor of the victim, provides a good example of how judges deal with this type of evidence. You'll see there that the trial judge in Patrick was pretty measured and somewhat skeptical of the probative value of the evidence, 
but found the evidence satisfied the rule because it was close in time to the alleged assault and therefore the fact that the victim appeared upset could make her allegation more probable. The appellate court warned that the Sane could not have testified that the Sane believed the alleged victim or that the demeanor of the alleged victim was consistent with someone who had experienced a sexual assault. But there the trial court appropriately limited the testimony to the victim's physical appearance. The concern of judges is understandable within the big picture of our legal system. We want the fact finder to determine credibility. That's their job. And the danger with this type of testimony is that the fact finder might abdicate its responsibility and is simply adopt what some other third party witness says. This is a real risk because in everyday life, we may put a great deal of weight, rightly or wrongly, on whether someone comes across as truthful to others. If I told my friend that my kid told me that she did not know how my car's bumper became dented and that she appeared very earnest in her denial, that may lead my friend to believe one, that I believe my kid is being truthful, and two, that I am more qualified to assess her credibility than my friend is. Which is exactly how a courts martial does not work, where the members are the one charged with credibility determination and fact-finding. Like the defense team in the Roberson case, you may want to get this sort of evidence in when it is consistent with your defense case. Maybe your client is accused of some crime, and you have a witness who will describe their reaction to learning of the accusation as total shock. That may be especially helpful if your client is testifying and is cross-examined in a way that implies a recent motive to fabricate. There are three big points for advocates to keep in mind. One, how to introduce this evidence. Two, how to amplify or minimize this evidence. And three, how you may use this evidence in the broader framework of your case. The foundation for admission is minimal. At its simplest, It's basically just asking, did you see how Airman Snuffy reacted? And how did he react? The foundation is established by the witness seeing it and being human. However, you may want to lay a stronger foundation for this sort of opinion evidence. If you are introducing this sort of evidence, you want to tack on as much information as you can to bolster the witness's opinion. Additionally, if the other side is introducing this evidence, you are likely hoping that they don't bring out greater detail so that you can later attack the lay opinion as totally speculative. So what type of foundation could we use to amplify a lay opinion on demeanor evidence? Let's use the fact pattern we gave a few moments ago about the client who is shocked to learn of the accusation against him and look at an example of a direct examination. Did you see how Airman Snuffy reacted when he was told about the accusation? Yes. I'm going to ask you for your opinion regarding his emotional state in a moment, but before we get there, Let's talk about what you actually observed. What did Airman Snuffy do physically with his body? He plopped into the chair and gave a big exhale. You said he plopped. Could you describe his posture when he did that? He was leaning all the way back in the chair and was slouched down. What did you notice about his face? His eyes got real big and then he was running his hands through his hair while he exhaled. What was his mouth like? Was he smiling, frowning? You tell us. He wasn't smiling. His mouth was just hanging open a little bit. Without telling us what he may have said, did he say anything at that point? No, it was just the big exhale while he ran his hands through his hair. Based on all these things that you saw when Airman Snuffy was told about this accusation, did you form an opinion about his emotional state at that moment? Yes. And what was that opinion? That he was shocked. 
those additional details can make a big difference in the weight or lack of weight that this evidence gets. It's important as you are looking at this sort of evidence to think about how it factors into the broader theme of your case and how it relates to the other evidence and the arguments you might make. An argument, beyond the limitations as to how the evidence may be used based on the judge's instructions, there are likely limits as to how much you can lean on this sort of evidence from the standpoint of your overall strategy. No one is a mind reader. Even if Airman Snuffy was shocked in that last scenario, we do not know why he was shocked, because we're not in his head. We can draw an inference, but it is just an inference. Lay opinion testimony of this sort can potentially reinforce points that you are making or corroborate other behaviors, but it won't make or break your case. To play with our earlier scenario, in order to illustrate this point, let's say that Aaron Snuffy said at the moment he learned of the allegation, I'm totally blown away. That statement would likely be admissible as a then-existing mental or emotional condition under MRE 8033, and the lay opinion evidence about the client's demeanor backs it up. It corroborates that the client's statement that he was, indeed, surprised and caught off guard at hearing of the allegation was, in fact, true. So that's all we have on lay opinion testimony about demeanor. Hope it was helpful, and I hope you all had a nice holiday. Happy New Year, and we'll get another episode out to you in two weeks. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Just like you. Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know It won't be long And they'll be happy to know That you saw me go, I was